0: Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your mother went. You can scream and you can holler, it really
1: doesn't matter. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with made. another edition of the Survival Podcast. And as always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. dictate it a bit differently today, I'm at home in the home office again. That means we're going to do a listener call show. So these are uh, recorded calls. People have called in to 866-65-THINK. If you'd like to be heard on a future show, uh, you can dial that number again, 866-65-THINK, T-H-I-N-K. And uh, that's because we encourage you to think here. Think about survival, think about preparedness, and think about things before you just go off on a tirade and believe something, we're going to talk about that a bit at the end of the housekeeping. First, though, we are going to do the housekeeping today. Uh, make sure, first of all, you are supporting our sponsors. They do a lot to support the show. They are all personal endorsements by me. Um and due to that, that means you can trust them. They are not people that just showed up with a check and I took everybody that can. We have turned sponsors away, trust me. Uh first sponsor of the day is Safe Castle Royal. Uh great organization, great stuff, great discount club, uh twenty-nine dollars, and you'll get big discounts on their products for the rest of your life. Give me a second, I'll tell you how to get that discount membership for free. Um Next sponsor of the day, MERS-radio.com. Again, M-U-R-S-radio.com. Uh, resellers of some great MERS radio equipment and some new uh, low-end ham gear coming soon, too. And uh, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with MERS radio. We're going to get the uh, owner of that operation on sooner or later for an interview, I promise. And we'll talk about some of the unique things that MERS radios can do for you. But if you have any questions, go to the website, check him out. Call him up. He'll help you out. He does a good job of support both before and after the sale. We learned that in our research about this sponsor. Next, get involved with our forum. Please get involved with our forum. I I can't put it any more bluntly than that. Our forum will help you learn, and it'll help you connect. That's enough for today. Next, uh, if you think the show's worth more than $0.20 an episode, consider joining the Members Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, uh, along with about $80 worth of free retail value uh some premium videos that i put together uh some uh stuff from James talmadge Steven this is a, he has been kind enough to donate and remember that uh, $29 discount membership to Safe castle royal well all uh tsp uh member support brigade members get that discount membership lifetime for free so there's 29 bucks right there first year it pays itself back immediately all right. From there, let's move on. Uh, before I get in to start taking your calls today, there's something that I've been meaning to say to this audience, and I just, you know, with all the different stuff I'm doing, I never get around to it. And that is every day from you guys, and I don't want you to stop sending me these emails. I do want you to start thinking first, though. I get emails from tons of people, both from the audience and just from friends, about you know something. Absolutely insane that a politician's doing, oh my God, you know they're burning babies at the stake or something uh, they're capping the income of all executives in the United States or you know and then sometimes they get really inspirational ones or really cool ones that are also a little bit hard to believe. What I'd like you guys to start doing when you get an email from somebody please verify the dadgon thing before you forward it to everybody in your inbox and tell them how outraged you are or how everybody should support this or, or whatever you're gonna say. I, it really bugs me. I want to tell you guys about a great website. It's called Snopes. S N O P E S dot com. Snopes. Go to Snopes, and just type in kind of the the key ideas around you know the thing, and see if it's on there. Snopes is a website that acts like a truth detector. It tells you where the rumor came from, where it started, what its origins are, whether it's true or false, or whether parts of it are true or false. And beyond Snopes, you can just do a basic Google search. But please try to verify this stuff. And remember, just because it's on 10 people's blogs doesn't mean it's true. The problem with the Internet is also the good thing about the Internet. There's no gatekeepers. Anybody can say anything. But then we as consumers have got to start using our brains and verifying things before we decide to tell everybody how angry we are and afford forward it to 20 million people. And that's how these email chains start. And I want you to understand something. This can be used as a form of domestic terrorism. It can be used as a form of uh, industrial um, uh, espionage, sabotage. So let's say that I was uh, a bank and I wanted everybody to do business with me. Well, I could create a great big list of all my biggest competing banks and put them on it and say that these banks are all about to fail in three months and that it's been verified by this, that, the other thing, and the tooth fairy, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. And then just give that to about 50 or 60 teenagers with Facebook and Twitter accounts and get that thing going and into some email chains. And, oh, lo and behold, three weeks later, 30 or 40 million people have read this list of banks that are going to fail. Now, there's no truth to this whatsoever, but how does it benefit the banks that are not on the list? That's just one example of how this stuff can be used. Let me bring up another thing for you guys. And it's important that we learn how to disseminate information. Some of you guys have got your foil hats on. Well, at least get your foil hattery correct, right? Um, and let's li- like not turn people into villains that aren't villains. Here's a perfect example. Had a person ask me this yesterday. I really get tired of defending this organization. Cause I don't think they're the greatest people in the world or anything. But it's PayPal. PayPal's anti-gun. PayPal's anti-gun. Oh my god! Okay, look. Here's the truth about PayPal. You can't sell or buy guns or gun parts with PayPal. That's true. What else can't you buy or sell with PayPal? Alcohol? Tobacco? Firearms? Adult products? Are you starting to get the point? There's a whole list of items that are heavily regulated items that PayPal chooses not to engage in. All right? You know, now, look. Do you, they don't allow you to buy Native American artifacts. They don't allow you to buy or sell... Items for a mature audience. So are they anti-smoking? Are they anti-Native American? Are they anti-alcohol? Look, folks, PayPal, you know what? I bet you that the CEO of PayPal probably isn't a gun person. I'll just concede that. But if we're going to stop doing business with companies where the CEO is not a gun person, we're going to have very few people left to do business with in this country. My view of PayPal is they've helped so many people set up independent businesses Without having to go through the rigmarole of setting up a typical merchant account, they've done far more good than harm. And we can't keep... And here's the one that drives me crazy. I won't give you any money because you do your membership pay with PayPal and you're any gun And then, you know, I get an email from the same person like, you know, two weeks later. They want me to look at an eBay auction for them and tell them what I think of something that's being sold on eBay. eBay owns PayPal. You ain't going to do business with PayPal, don't See, and this is the thing. This stuff could be verified very quickly with a simple online search. But the, the PayPal thing is just one example. I don't mean to go off in a tirade on this, folks. Let's go ahead and start taking some calls. But I please, when you get these chain emails, if nothing else, if you haven't ch- changed your opinion about PayPal, fine. I'm not, not going to fight that war. I have no dog, really, in that hunt. That's fine. But on these chain emails where Nancy Pelosi's doing blah, 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 or Harry read this, or oh, my God, Obama's going to kill us all, please please, before you just believe the email, because it says it's verifiable, go verify it. If you don't, you might as well start sending your bank account numbers to that nice guy in Nigeria who's a barrister who wants you to inherit some general's fortune. And with that, I'll move on. But I just felt that was my public service announcement and rant of the day. So let's go ahead and take our first call.
2: Hey, Jack,
0: this is Mike uh, from the uh, forums. Uh, i got a question for you and a show idea. Uh, one, I was going back and watching some of the videos from the members' support brigade and uh, it got me thinking about pesticides for your fruit trees. I was wondering what you use to keep the critters away. Also, um, I was wondering about companion planning and pesticides in general um, for your normal crops and that kind of stuff. All right, thank you.
1: Uh, as I answer this question, I want you guys to realize some of these questions are like from July. Um, I've got really a huge backlog on calls, so uh, there's, there's going be some spread here. But let me take this one because this is a good question. Um, the answer for what pesticides I use with fruit trees and nut trees and things like that is I don't use anything that I would actually consider to be a pesticide at all. Um, there's two things that I'll use to deal with critters on trees. And, and the first one is called neem oil. And I have become a huge fan of neem oil. And you mix it up in one of those, you know, one or two gallon sprayers, uh, per the instructions on the label. And you spray your tree with that about once or twice a week, once a week or once every two weeks, uh, depending on how bad your problems are, and you won't have any more problems. It is absolutely devastating on fruit fly larvae and things like that. Um, the other thing that I would use if I had problems that the neem couldn't control is uh, DE or Dimataceous earth. Uh, you can sprinkle that on your uh, tree leaves and things like that around the ground where these little critters kind of come out of the, the rotten fruit, go into the ground, pupate, and reproduce. And uh, if they get any of that stuff on them, it's just a death sentence. I'm not as big a fan of DE as I am a fan of neem. And the reason is that DE is an indiscriminate killer. DE will kill your earthworms if they get it on them. So I, I try to be more judicious with my use of DE. It's not a toxin. It won't hurt you. You can eat it. People take it as a supplement. What it is is it's little crushed rock from uh, ancient sea creatures. And what it does is it actually it kind of acts like volcanic ash to an insect. It, it cuts into their exoskeleton, and it's so dry that it sucks their moisture out of their body, and it dehydrates them and damages their exoskeleton. Um, so it's a great uh, organic tool it is uh, also again though an indiscriminate killer d uh, or uh, neem oil basically has no harmful effects on any beneficial insect unless it sucks or chews it is it, is you know as either sucking fruit or chewing leaves neem oil won't really affect it what neem is is it's almost like like a bioterrorism warfare against insects what neem will do is uh, these insects get exposed to it and it disrupts their uh, their neural capacity in their brain somehow and they like forget And what I mean by forget is they forget to eat, they forget that they can fly, they forget to breed, they just kind of sit there in a daze until they starve to death and die. So it takes a little longer to work, but you 'll find a, a great deal of effect. Some of the other things you can do if you only have a few fruit trees, you can put like what they call the apple maggot bags over your apples when they 're small, and that 'll help protect them as well and Then, if you add poultry to that mix, like chickens or ducks uh, as a, as an infected piece of fruit falls to the ground there 's where the life cycle of the fruit fly and the fruit borer starts. you know it comes out of the fruit, usually goes into the ground, pupates. It's born, it flies right back up, breeds, lays eggs, and does it all over again. Well, when you add poultry to that mix, what happens is that piece of fruit that falls off that is infected, uh, is, is then pecked open, and all the little critters inside it are consumed, and the life cycle's broken. As far as companion planting, I've done some shows on companion planting. Can't go deep into companion planting today. I don't do a lot of companion planting for the purpose of pest control with trees, other than I keep a lot of, uh, clumps of herbs and flowers throughout the entire property that brings in a lot of predatory insects but it's not in any way directly applicable to the trees and things like that. And then one of the other things you can do is when you're buying fruit trees, don't necessarily run out to Lowe's or Home Depot or whatever, just buy whatever's available. Get yourself a good catalog from a company like Norris uh, Nursery or Rain Tree Nursery or something like that and learn about the different varieties and find the varieties of these different fruits that are most resistant to the pests that are most common in your area that's a good way to get off to kind of a heavy first start additionally one of the things that you can do is simply when you start to have your fruit being produced this is so simple and it's something like somebody with an orchard can't do but somebody with you know half a dozen or less trees easily can do especially dwarf and semi-dwarf varieties where you can easily pick if you see fruit that's infected if it has little holes in it of any kind worms and whatever grab it take a knife cut it open and stab that little sucker and pitch the fruit into your compost bin don't pitch it into the compost bin with the little insect in there cuz he'll just he'll have a field day in your compost bin come out and look for the tree and start the breeding cycle over again you got to get rid of them Uh, another thing would be if you have a good shredder you could toss all of it into a shredder and pitch that into the compost bin and the shredder will probably take care of it or if you have if you have poultry and you just see some on the trees with the damage done to them go ahead and pluck those and put them down there for the poultry to take care of and then throw anything that's left over in the compost bin but You could take some specific actions like that. What we have to understand is that sometimes we're too hard on the big producer with wanting them to be completely organic and things like that or not use fertilizers and what have you and, and they can do some of it but they can't, there's a limit to what they can do. But for you at home with a dozen or less trees or a dozen or less, you know, permanent plantings, it's a lot easier to do. Also plant a huge variety of things. That way it's not kind of a smorgasbord. If you do have three of the same variety of apple on your property, probably a better idea to spread them out a bit. Maybe plant crab apples for cross-pollinators. Uh, that way the crab apple's less susceptible to problems, and maybe you can use that for some things like jellies or wines or even a tarting agent for cider. So there's some companion planting ideas. Great question. Let's move on and take the next one.
3: Hey Jack, how you doing? This is uh, Spooky One from the Forums. I wanted to ask about the dog, Um your last episode on Homestead Dogs. Let's say you're gonna buy a dog from a breeder. You know, some guy in the paper or some guy on the internet. How can you be sure that what you're getting is 100% purebred? Is there some method or something you look for? Let us know. Bye.
1: There's actually a couple ways to, uh, to skin that cat so to speak or maybe skin that dog so to speak here. Uh number 1, you can start by I hate to say this, not doing business with the individual who's breeding out of his house, you know, but a reputable kennel. That's one way to approach this. If you buy from a reputable kennel with a long-term uh relate, you know, long-term reputation, you're probably going to not have any problems. So, especially the kennels that have been around for maybe 10 years or more. Now, I hate to put it that way because the problem is everybody has to start somewhere and new people have to get a start and they have to have the opportunity to create that reputation for themselves. So that's not the only way to do this, but that's one way to be sure the next level that you can do let's say you are buying from tom and tom lives over in you know one or two towns away from you and he has a nice beautiful purebred water spaniel male and he decides it would be a good idea to breed his purebred water spaniel male so he goes and gets a buddy or a hunting friend that has a a, a female and uh he, they breed the dogs and they have the puppies and they're going to sell them and split the profit it happens all the time so you want to be sure that those puppies are purebred water spaniels. Well, what you can ask for is to see copies of the registration paperwork for the sire and the dam. Okay, so mom and dad. And there should be no problem providing that information to you. And if there is, then you don't have any assurances. If you know that both animals that were bred were certified purebreds from uh, the American Kennel Club, then you know uh, that you have fully verifiable puppies, and they should come with their own paperwork. So that's another way to do it. It's just simply making sure that you can verify that the there's paperwork with the puppies and that there's paperwork to represent both sides of, of the offspring. Then there's, you know, here's the reality. There's no such thing in the world today as, at least for most breeds, as a purebred dog. Uh, every dog out there is started out as a mongrel. They would see a certain attribute or trait and they would find other dogs with that trait and they would start breeding the dogs until a point where they would come up into what we call a recognized purebred. Okay. And somebody just decided one day in their little clique, their little club over there, uh, that, okay, this is now a recognized breed. And many breeds are less than a hundred years old today. The German Shepherd is a breed that uh, goes back to about 1900. Before 1900, there was no such thing as a German Shepherd. Today, it's the most recognized breed in the world. Now, so how do we have an animal and say that it meets the criteria for a recognized breed? Well, um, the American Kennel Association will put out a description of what makes a dog not only a verified pure breed, but desirable. The way the hindquarters should look, the size, the height at the shoulder, how big they should be at a certain age, the way the teeth are structured, uh, diagrams that show when the dog is standing looking away, how it's, you know, exactly how its hindquarters should look from the thing down. So if you really want to become kind of informed about a specific breed, you can look at those criteria. And then you can kind of add to that, well, a pup's not going to look like an adult dog. Well, if you're allowed to examine the parents, the sire and the dam again, you can see do they meet not just full bred uh, standards, but do they meet the breed requirements as acceptable for the breed? And other because if you have a a male and a female that both look like top quality animals, their their pups, as long as you use a little bit of intuition in picking the pups, should be a very good example of the adults. But the easy answer deal with an established kennel. Uh, but paperwork, if it's a purebred, there should always be paperwork. Never deal with anybody that says to you, well, you can go get the paperwork. No, 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 that's not the way it works. If I'm buying a dog from you and I'm paying for a purebred dog, you are to bring me the paperwork. Just like if you go to a diamond uh, seller and he says, well, this is a certified, you know, clarity and cut and everything. Well, it's up to him to provide you that certification. Or if you buy a coin and it's listed as a PCGS, MS-69, then it better be in a PS, you know, uh, uh, MS-69 case, right? So, always ask for that if it's important to you. Now, my real thoughts are, unless you're going to go into breeding or dog shows, that's not really as important as some people make it out to be, but if you're paying for it, you have a right to make sure you're getting it. Those are my best thoughts on how you can ensure that you do that.
4: Hey, Jack, this is Casey POD from your forum. Uh, just wanted to call up and ask um what you think is a a good budget survival knife um and actually what you consider to be a survival knife uh you know i've got a lot of different things in mind um but i don't know what actually qualifies as a survival knife um if you like the leatherman type uh type setup or if if you like uh uh you know, more like a fighting knife. Uh, but if you could uh, give me some recommendations, I, I'm looking for something new, so uh, I'd appreciate that. And uh, I think think it might be a good topic. So, thanks for the show. Bye.
1: Okay, that's a that's a perfect example of a question that I like. Think is a really great question, and I hate getting it at the same time because. Um, I think one of the most overblown things in the world is the survival knife. Um, I'll tell you what's not a survival knife to start out. The uh, the cheap survival knives that have the hollow handles, and they don't have a blade that goes all the way through the tang, and uh, they'll break really easily if you try to work them hard. Those aren't survival knives. Now, I can't remember. There's there's one out there that has a hollow handle that is just built like unbelievable, and it's like a $300 or more knife, and it's it's a good knife, but I don't think it's necessary. <coughs> Let's start out by telling you what I carry, and this is a good time to mention something. I've started a new thing on YouTube where I'm doing product reviews, and this really wasn't part of the product reviews, but I did a review not long ago of a Buck 110, which is a well-proven long-term folder, and the uh, reduced-sized uh, K-Bar, USMC K-Bar knife, the smaller one, that's legal for carry even when you're not in you know, pursuit of game or fish or whatever in certain states that require that you don't carry a knife with a blade greater than six inches in length unless you're involved in one of these activities. So, that is a knife that I carry a lot, that K-bar, the smaller K-bar. I have larger K-bars, and if I'm anywhere where it's legal for me to carry it, that I'm going like backpacking or woodsmanship or something like that, I carry the larger knife and I like it better. I think you'd be hard pressed, uh, to find a knife that's really a much better knife for the money than the K-bar. You're getting 50 bucks, 50, 60 dollar range, uh, been around forever, been proven forever. Every Marine seems to love his, and they're a good, solid, durable knife. Uh, the Buck 110 is a great folder. I like it because I can go to Walmart and it, nobody freaks out. Now, it's completely legal for me to walk around with that reduced size K-Bar on my side. Nobody gets, you know, nobody can throw me in jail for it or anything. But when you walk into a store or into a social arrangement or something like that, and you've got a, you know, almost six inch bladed, large handled fixed blade knife on your belt, unless you're in a place where, you know, people kind of are used to that, it, it attracts attention and you're not really uh, wanting to kind of be seen. So I'd recommend you check out my YouTube video on the Buck 110 and uh, the K bar for some thoughts on that. Let's talk about what I think makes a survival knife. A survival knife is a good durable knife that you can carry with it a means to sharpen that you are capable of sharpening it with. And what I mean is I would rather have somebody have a lower quality steel if they're not skilled in how to sharpen a knife. Sharpening a good hard carbon steel knife, like the buck that I mentioned, like the K-bar, takes a given level of skill. I recommend that you learn the skill. But if you don't have the skill yet, I'd rather you sitting with a piece of, you know, 440 stainless and a, a little uh, butcher file piece that you can sharpen up really quickly you it, for a knife to be effective it has to be able to cut now you also have to be able to maybe do some chopping and that's where you need some heavier quality steel to do that. But you would still if you're not a, you're not, you know, skilled as a sharpener of hard steels, you'd be better off with something like a machete or a hatchet, adding that to your, you know, your kind of your equipment list and uh, having a very sharp, you know, a knife that's easy for you to sharpen for things that are more detailed work and knife oriented. I am not a big fan of fighting knives. And I know that, well, the K-Bar knife is a fighting knife, but not in the way that most people mean it. The Tonto blades, and, you know, this is the Rambo, you know, version 7 or whatever, and, you know, this is designed for, like, stabbing people. I, knives are a last resort weapon. In a fight with a knife, the person with the knife is highly likely to cut the other person in a, in a fight. Uh, that doesn't guarantee them a win. In fact, it will often guarantee that the other person will be legally justified, pull out a gun, and blow their brains out, even if the guy with the knife didn't start the fight. So I'm not a big fan of the fighting knife. Uh, knives have a lot of utility, but I think, again, this, this is a topic that's way overstretched. The biggest things that I'm looking for out of a knife is a knife that's rugged and durable and that will handle tough situations. If it meets that criteria, and most of the good knives out there do, a lot of the knives from Cold Steel, again, Buck, again, K-Bar, um, tons of different manufacturers, a lot of independent people make knives, custom knives. Most of them use very, very good quality steel, and they do a really good job. And just about any knife... Is preferable to having no knife. I also think, and if you watch my video, you'll see that there's a place for cheap knives. Uh, I have in every vehicle, in every tackle box, and just about every drawer of the house piles of these little lockback knives that I got in a great big set from a place called Frost Cutlery, and I think they ended up costing me about a dollar and ten cents each. They're cheap little knives, but they're razor sharp, and because they're cheap steel, you put them on a butcher steel for three passes, they'll, they'll shave hair. Um, and there's always a knife somewhere. So I would rather have a bunch of little cheap knives laying around and one or two really good knives. And the, the, the reason I don't like the term survival knife, that brings up the images of Les Stroud or Bear Gryllis and you're out in the woods and all you have is your knife. Well, if you're down to just your knife out in the bush, that means you've screwed up. You shouldn't be down to just your knife out in the bush. And if you're so skilled as a woodsman that you can survive with just a knife, then you should probably be skilled enough to make a knife out of what's out there in the wilderness. I'm not saying you throw your knife away, but you get my point. If you're planning on being in that situation, go ahead and learn napping. Go ahead and learn to find obsidian and make your own knife. Because you're, you're, what you're doing is you're inherently limiting yourself when you say I'm going to rely just on a knife. So I hope that answers your question. On the YouTube thing, I kind of forgot this. Hey, I have a YouTube channel, folks. Go on YouTube. Go to my site. You'll see the YouTube link there. Go to YouTube. Uh, look up Survival Podcasting is my username. Hey, friend me. Uh, subscribe to my channel. I probably don't push my channel enough, but I do have a YouTube channel, and I've been putting a lot of videos up there. And I have a new thing coming out called Product Showcase, where I'm doing just this. I'm reviewing products. I have a great one I just did yesterday on uh, a little Sylvania LED power failure light that doubles as a flashlight. This thing's really cool. I'll put a link to my channel in today's show notes, but I need as many subscribers and friends on YouTube as I can get. So hook up with me on YouTube, and let's go ahead and take another question.
3: Hi, Jack. This is John Richardson from Western North Carolina, JPR 9954 on the forums, with a question about buying property for a bug-out location. In your opinion, and I do realize that's one man's opinion, all things being equal, including price, would it be better to buy raw land with more features such as water, trees, and open space on it and build a cabin or house on it later as finances permit, or would it be better to buy a smaller piece of property with a dwelling on it They may not have all the features that the raw land has. Um, I will be inheriting a house from my mother uh, shortly, and I could use that money to build the house later. So I have the money now for either a smaller piece of property with a house or a larger piece of property with no house. Thanks for your opinion. I appreciate it. Take care.
1: Well, first of all, thank you for stating that you understand this is one man's opinion, because that makes me a little bit freer with my opinion for you on it. Um, Let's start off with a couple things. One, it's going to be highly subjective, and in the end, you're going to have to make your own decision based on what you really want in life and what your financial resources are. Um, But let me put it to you this way. Let's say that right now somebody showed up at my house and said, Mr. Spirico, I am from the... United Housing to Americans Friend Guild, and you've been selected to receive a half a million dollars. And the only conditions upon receiving this half a million dollars is you have to go out and buy a house in it, and it's going to be a house that you're going to live in. So you're going to have to sell your two houses, and you're going to have to live in this house and buy this house, or even if you keep your other houses, you're going to have to move in and live in this house. This is going to become your main house, and you get half a million dollars to do that with. If you want anything additional, you can buy anything additional you want out of your own pocket, but you have to spend all the money on your house. Um, I would go out and find myself a $100,000 house with $400,000 worth of land on it. We say that again. I'd go out and look for a house that's worth about $100,000 with about $400,000 worth of land with it. Now, here's the reality. If you gave me the $500,000, i would put most of it away and invest it into different things, and I wouldn't ever spend a half a million dollars on a house. But uh, there tells you where my preference would be. The land is of paramount importance to me. Um, you can always make a house bigger. you can always add on to it If you have enough land, you can always build a guest house or a second house or an entire compound of small housing units um you can 't stretch land and make it longer you you, you can't make land that 's in the middle of the city teleport itself out into the the country. Um, now, I've done a whole series of shows where I've talked about bug out locations and I've said you don't necessarily need a thousand acres of land or even a hundred or even forty. You can have a really nice homestead on two acres of land, but this comes down to what you really want and what you want out of your land. I find a lot of people that say, I want a hundred acres. I say, well, why do you, what do you want to do with it? Do you want to farm a hundred acres? Oh no, I want to leave most of it in woods. Well, why do you want a 100 acres? Well, I want to put my house in the middle of it so I'm surrounded by woods and nobody builds close to me, and I can hunt and fish or whatever or just hike or whatever on my own property and be left alone. Well... If you kind of found a remote location with a two acre lot and your lot bordered on two or three sides, national forest, state forest, BRM land, something like that where public have access, but it's not like a, you know, a state park entrance where people are camping there all the time and everything. You pretty much have the same thing. Yeah, people are going to be passing through and stuff like that, but basically you walk out your back door and you might have instead of a hundred acres, 10,000 acres at your back door or adjacent to state game lands. Uh, different things like that. So a smaller plot of land against some type of big public access land that's protected and again relatively remote. I wouldn't want to live where yeah it's a state park behind me, but I'm behind the part of the state park with all the uh RV hookups or something like that. But you know what I mean. The more remote land, the hunting. Uh, especially uh, a lot of states have you know state game lands or in that state what their equivalent in walk-in only hunting lands and things like that that are state or uh, federal owned. And protected and difficult of and not impossible to ever build anything on, so you can hybrid that situation. but in your situation you 're going to have to make your own decision i 'm just giving you some things to think about if you're going to have enough money coming in in your inheritance, if you 're sure about that, and you know you can build the type of house you want, I would focus on the land. First, It doesn't mean I would go buy the plot of land that you have in mind versus the small house that you have in mind. You might even go out and find a really nice piece of land with a little house on it and see what the improvements to the house you're going to want are going to cost and do a hybrid situation like that, but I would definitely absolutely put the premium on the land. That is not so much, though, from a prepper survivalist mentality. It's from my personal view and what I most want in my life. I want land I can shape, I can form, I can control, and I want land that has assets on it. Things like you mentioned, like water. Running or standing water, and not seasonal creeks, but full year-round creeks or ponds, Water on the property is a huge advantage. It takes away so many additional problems that you have without it. That's a huge thing. Being off of main drives and things like that, having access to public lands, even if they're not adjacent but nearby, um, all of these things have a lot uh, the, 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 of things that to me are very important so I would put the premium on the land in the end you have to make your own decision great question, hope I've given you some things to think about and uh, I wish you well with whatever you do going forward let's go ahead and take another question
2: Hi Jack, this is Bob, otherwise known as Radio MacGyver up here in the soon to be cold northeastern part of the United States I appreciate the information that you had about wood stoves and I'm interested in learning some more. In particular, uh what are the good and bad points about the pellet stoves? I know that there are some problems with uh, occasionally getting pellets and also if the power goes you need uh, electric power to maintain the uh, operation of it and I heard some of them can be manually fed. Also, uh, is there any advantage to the fireplace inserts? uh versus a fireplace, uh, you know, a wood stove that you would uh, put and then use the uh, the fireplace flue to, uh, you know, run the, the pipe out of. You know, just a couple of ideas. Maybe you could talk about that and uh, kind of incorporate that into the whole thing about uh, cutting wood and about tools. I know occasionally you've mentioned stuff, the importance about having uh, tools and how to sharpen them and so forth and so on. Thanks again for a great show. Keep up the good work.
1: Good stuff there from uh, Radio MacGyver. Hey, man, um, you came up right off with my two big concerns about pellet stoves. One, um, not having um, them feeding themselves when the electricity is out. I mean, the biggest reason that you uh, want something like a wood stove or a fireplace beyond the savings, the direct savings and heating costs, is so that if you, know, you get an ice storm like we occasionally do all across our great land and it takes out the power for three or four days, you're not sitting in your house freezing to death. Now some of them do have manual feed options and that's a good thing. The bigger concern for me though is restricting yourself to the use of pellets. If um, if I have a fireplace or a wood stove, if I can get a hold of good hardwood anywhere, I can throw anything in there and burn it and it'll work. I can even throw wood in there that I really wouldn't want to burn because it has maybe a high sap counter. It's too much of a soft wood or something like that um, that I, I don't want to burn on a daily basis. But hey, you know what? I'm trying to get through, and I'm out, and I need this for now, and I, I can do this here. Pellet stove. I don't have pellets. I don't have heat now. As long as you you know are smart and you buy enough pellets every summer to make it through the winter, then that's not an issue anymore unless we have a real shit hits the fan. So it's your comfort level. How comfortable are you with the fact that, you know, those pellets are going to be there next year and the year after and the year after? So I have a little bit of concern with pellet stoves. I'm a bigger fan of just flat-out wood stoves that you just burn wood in uh, of varying varieties. The pellet stoves really have been put together by the eco people. We're going to use sawdust from wood that's been cut up anyway. It's a renewable resource. It's a great thing. There's nothing wrong with it. I wouldn't even rule out getting one myself. Uh, So I don't want to be like I'm bashing them. But from a pure prepper standpoint, they're not the most versatile tool that's available to you. Let's go to the other one. An advantage of a fireplace insert versus a uh, just a freestanding wood or coal stove or something like that. Um, let's talk about what a fireplace insert is first because not everybody may know fireplaces generally don't do a really good job of heating houses. Um, They may heat the general area pretty decently, but the rest of the house, they tend to uh, actually make cooler, because they pull air in and up the chimney, and when you pull air through a room, you drop its temperature. So, if you go put a thermometer in your living room and get up a roaring fire, you'll see that the temperature in your living room will go up. Go one or two rooms down the hall, stick a thermometer there, and you'll generally see your temperature actually drop. As crazy as that sounds. So, what people did is they came up with this idea that there was plenty of heat there. It just wasn't being distributed. So what they've done is they've made these inserts that are basically hollow steel, and they go in the back of your fireplace, and they have an intake and an outtake, and most of them run with a fan that requires electricity. Um, of course, converting one to runoff battery would be pretty easy to do, and uh, I've always thought, you know, there's a lot of heat. There's an awful lot of energy in a fire, and there should be some way to harness that energy and generate Kind of a, a, a an airflow, but the way I've seen most of them work, they have a fan, and you have a series of tubes, and it goes back behind the heat, and it sucks air in one side, and it runs it through this baffling, and then it blows it back out into the room. They work excellent. A big problem I have with a lot of them is a lot of them I'm looked at the little fan thing that runs is very loud. it's, it's extremely noisy. And I don't get why they have to be that loud. I'm thinking about going down to a metal shop when I move to Arkansas and uh, we'll rely on our fireplace quite a bit there. And having one fabricated custom and seeing about something simple like, hey, can we rig up one of these simple little, uh, like the fans that are inside your computer tower to be the intake fan? Those things are pretty quiet. They move actually quite a bit in air, especially through a contained area. There's got to be a way to make the dadgone things quieter. Now, what are their advantage? Um, they're less expensive, they're less work, and you can shut them the hell off. And what do I mean by that? I've been in houses where you got that 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 wood stove going, and it happens to get a little bit warmer that day than you planned on. And even if you kind of dampen down everything, that stove is red hot, man. It's throwing heat, and it's making the house entirely too hot. I've been in houses where, with coal stoves and wood stoves, you get kind of a warm winter day. And uh, it's still cold out. You still need some heat. But people are opening windows because the Dadgon stove is so hot. You know, and this is a problem you don't have with your pellet stove. That's the nice thing about your pellet stove. It's an advantage for that. But your wood stove or your coal stove, man, when that thing gets up and heated up, if you even stop feeding it, it's going to stay hot for a long time. So the fireplace insert, even though that fire is warm, um, it, the fireplace generally is going to be less fuel there. It's going to burn out a little bit quicker and come down. But you just turn the fan off, and you stop getting that circulation. So if it starts to get too warm, you have a level of control. Again, they're definitely less expensive, and they don't take up space. If you, you know, build out your fireplace hearth and put a freestanding stove in front of your fireplace and then use the chimney, you've occupied space that could be used for other things in your home, even if it's just walking open space, uh, you know, clearance to walk by. If you have a huge room, maybe that doesn't matter. But if you have smaller rooms like a lot of us do, you're giving up quite a bit of space for that stove. And then the other thing is you have your fireplace, you have your screens closed, you have your, you know, maybe you have one of those freestanding gates in front of the fireplace, less likely for a kid to stick their hand on and burn themselves. So if you have kids in the house, freestanding stoves, I guess you could say they'll only do it once, but that's kind of a harsh reality for, you know, especially like a toddler. So I really don't recommend freestanding stoves without a tremendous amount of oversight in houses with young children because that's a big danger that they're going to run up there, you know, and brand their hand uh, with the stove itself. So those are just some of my thoughts. Again, one man's opinion. Let's go ahead and take another question.
0: Hey, Jack, this is Matt in North Carolina. I had uh just two questions or Actually, I just wanted to find out what you thought about uh, two things. Uh, I had recently watched and friends had told me about the uh, Zeitgeist movie, and I wondered if you've seen that or if you uh, had any comments. And the other thing was what your thoughts are on uh, democratic uh, treason, or the I don't know if it's treason or terrorism, but the uh, uh, majority overruling the rights of the minority.
1: Anyway, thank you very much. Bye. Okay, there's uh, two interesting things there. Um, I'm going to warn anybody. Before you go watch this film, this Zeitgeist film, There's um, if you're a religious person, pat- particularly Christian, you're going to be offended, probably, shocked, probably, in disbelief, probably uh, by about the first 40 minutes of it. And uh, you now watch it at your own Peril. I'm also going to tell you there's a lot of tinfoil hattery in this thing. When I watch Zeitgeist, what I said is that when you really want to create a good piece of, uh, of uh, I wouldn't call it propaganda, but if you have an objective, a goal that you want to lead people to a conclusion, the best way to do it is wrap truth and mythology together. And there's a lot of truth in Zeitgeist. There's a ton of it. And uh, I'll leave Zeitgeist as something that you watch... With my disclaimer, especially those of you who are religious, or those of you that are completely anti-conspiracy foil hattery, uh, if you watch it, don't blame me for it. Don't be upset with me because I mentioned the, the thing because I was asked about it. Okay, But if you want to examine it, you can do it on Google Video. I'll put a link in today's show notes for it. My overall view of it is, again, there's a lot of fact, and there's a lot of fiction, and there's a lot of myth, and there's a lot of foil. It's all of it mixed together. And you disseminate it for yourself, what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe. I will tell you that the things about monetary policy in it and the Federal Reserve and how things are put together from the Federal Reserve are absolutely 100% accurate. I'll give you a very specific example in this movie of a complete inaccuracy. In this uh, in this uh, video, they have a quote uh, from... Uh, Woodrow Wilson, who was president when the Federal Reserve was created. Now, please understand before I go forward, if you've listened to my show long enough, if you've listened to my shows on the Federal Reserve, I think the Federal Reserve is one of the most disastrous creations ever known to mankind. I think it's positively evil. I think it was created in what you can only call a conspiracy uh, type of environment. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's absolutely positively the worst thing that's ever happened to our nation. It turned our money into debt. So I'm not defending it, but I want to give you an example of something in Zeitgeist, uh, if you've ever seen this, and you've all taken it all as fact, as positively untrue. There's a quote that was supposedly written by Woodrow Wilson years after he came out of the presidency in his memoirs. And it's along the lines of, you know, our, our nation is now controlled uh, by just a few men, and it's in the hands of bankers and things like that. And basically it's his confession that he allowed this to happen. That's how it's presented in the movie. Uh, Woodrow Wilson did say those words. He didn't say those words in a memoir uh, confessing to creating the Federal Reserve. He said those words in a campaign speech when he was running for president about the way that the economy was being controlled prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve. Now, again, I'm not defending the Federal Reserve. I'm just saying that, just like I talked about earlier with verify, 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 right? Verify things. When I went to verify that quote, um I found out it was, it was not true. I also... When I examined this movie and started to verify some things, there was a quote in there from Benjamin Franklin saying that the chief cause of the American Revolution, uh, was the failure of King James to allow the colonies to run an honest currency, which I had heard before and I had actually used on this show before. Let me tell you, I was wrong. That's a misattributed quote. Now, if you go back and you dig deeply into Franklin and the works that he did and the things that he wrote, you'll find that he actually had that opinion. But that direct quote, that I gave you was wrong. It never happened. It's a misattribution. Uh, It came out in like the 40s or the 50s or somewhere like that in a pamphlet that was put together by some people pushing a libertarian agenda, which I'm also for, but it's factually inaccurate. So, Zeitgeist, um, you can't take everything that you see online, even a well-put-together little piece of cinematography is true. Uh, But I would say that we're all free men and women. We all are given... Uh, the ability to look at information and decide what we want to believe and what we want to follow up on and what we want to know more about. And it won't hurt you to watch Zeitgeist, but it might offend you a great deal. And don't blame me if it does. That's all I can say for Zeitgeist right now, except I think it might be a very eye-opening experience for some people uh, with some of the pieces of it. Um, the... Next part of the question is an interesting one, and it's a democratic terrorism. I don't think is the right word, but I know what you're getting at. You're saying, what happens when the rights of the majority supersede the rights of the minority? Um, our nation wasn't founded to allow that to happen. If you go back into the past, you'll find uh, one of the, the 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 great concepts of this new nation was my major, majority rule with minority rights and when they said minority back then they weren't talking about you know somebody's different color of skin they meant the minority opinion that the majority would be able to rule in a republican form of government but the minority opinion would still have rights that cannot be taken away that's why our government is not a democracy our forefathers didn't shed their blood risk their lives and many of them die to create a democracy they did it to create a republic a republic which gave more rights to the states than to the federal government, that gave the federal government supremacy in only a very few specific areas, believing that in this nation of, at the time, you know, 13 colonies becoming states and a few more states being kind of brought in. And as it evolved in understanding kind of, you know, the Monroe Doctrine concept that we were going to expand and become a bigger nation with more states, that if there were enough states out there and the states managed and governed themselves and had a common currency, a common culture, a common language, and then handled their relationships with other nations through a common government, and if everything else was left to the states, that if a state a lot of stupidity, like California does right now, or New Jersey does right now, that people and businesses because it's a common nation with free movement between the states, would simply say, you know what, you want to do your stupidity, you want to overtax me, you want to be nonsensical, I'll move to Texas, or I'll move to Montana, or I'll move to Wyoming, or I'll move to South Dakota, right? Or I'll move to New Hampshire, like the Free State Project has people doing. That's how our government was set up. Now, it's been hijacked. It's absolutely positively been hijacked by a federal government that refuses to understand the limitations placed upon it by the Ninth and 10th Amendments of the Constitution that decree that the rights that are not expressly granted to the federal government are then granted to the states or the people respectively. Which means that the Constitution doesn't specifically say that the federal government has a power, it does not. Period. There is no interpretive power. For the federal government. And the only way to give the federal government a new power is through the amendment process to the Constitution. It's so simple that a fifth grader should be able to understand it, but we're not teaching fifth graders the truth about it anymore. So my biggest piece of advice to you guys if you've never read the Constitution in full, sit down and read the Constitution in full. Ask yourself what each paragraph means. Don't just read the Bill of Rights, that's a cop out don 't just read the Bill of Rights, read the entire Constitution, understand it i know it 's not the most exciting you know novelistic type reading known to man, but it 's beautiful words upon which this nation was founded, and you should read it and you should know it. when you don 't understand what something means research it, get differing opinions on it, and then just read it again, and I bet you it'll become cut and dry to you what it really means. I don't have to tell you what it means. But that's what I think about that, that it's absolutely impossible in a properly run country under our current Constitution for that to occur because of the free will of the individual to move between the states. That was the safeguard, and that's why allowing the federal government to literally crap on the second, the Tenth Amendment is absolutely intolerable, and we can't allow it any further. And that's where you're starting to see these states come out with defiant uh, actions saying we're not going to allow this. That's where you see Oath Keepers standing. That's where you see Sheriff Mack standing, saying, calling on his fellow sheriffs to tell the federal government, no, you will not tell me how to enforce law in my area where I've been elected by my local population to enforce our local law. You will not supersede the, the, the powers of my state And you will not supersede The powers of my local municipality That's what that's all about So that's what I think You guys can do what you want with that Let's take another question
4: Jack, this is Sweetheart's Mom And you may have addressed this in the past But I have not found it uh, in the archives Question about buying silver and buying gold um, I, I've read very little on it But I've read some that says That the government can confiscate silver and gold in a shit hit fan scenario? Is this possible? If so, is there silver and gold that they cannot do this with?
1: Thanks. Okay, good question, and it's a good question for a variety of reasons. Let's start out with the first and most uh, applicable reason, and that is because um, we have a nation today where people scam people all the time into buying from them versus somebody else. And there are a tremendous number of companies out there that are somehow saying that their gold and silver products are different than somebody else's gold and silver products uh, because their gold and silver will not be subject to seizure uh, should the government, again, seize gold and or silver assets. Okay, That is a lie. That is nonsense, and there is no way for anybody to say that they have anything that's immune to anything that doesn't exist. And what I mean is, um, if you said, um, Jack, uh, you know, we have a, uh, a, a gold product for you that can't be seized by the federal government. I'd say, well, since the federal government right now is not in the act of seizing gold, if they ever did it, how the hell would you know how they would do it? And the answer is you can't possibly know. So the only thing that they try to do is they say certain collectible coins were not considered bullion when FDR seized the gold uh, back in the 30s. And that's true. That has nothing to do with today. The other thing we have to do is we have to look back and go, when they seized the gold, they didn't seize the silver. You could own silver all the way through, no problem. In fact, silver was in your coinage all the way up to 1964. So silver is uh, it does no pr- historical precedent for being seized in the United States. So now we have to ask ourselves, if we want to, uh, to, to look forward at this, what could happen in the future? And to say, what kind of gold could I buy that the federal government cannot seize uh, under some type of law or auspice, is like saying, can God, build a, can God make a rock so large that God can't move the rock? It's a question with no real answer, because the federal government has done things that they can't do over and over again. There's laws we're living with right now that are flat out unconstitutional. So the government can, in theory, do anything it wants to us. Uh, we all say our rights this and right that, but when it comes right down to it, if they want to be authoritarian, especially with something like asset seizure, there's no telling how these clowns would write the law. The question is, would people tolerate it today? It was a different world back then. Let's again examine what actually happened when federal, when the, when the federal government seized gold and made it illegal to buy and own gold without a very complicated to get permit, um, under FDR. What they did is they decided that they needed to devalue our currency, what, which even with the Federal Reserve being in place really wasn't possible to the level it needed to be. And gold was trading somewhere in the low twenties and its, its real value in US dollars was around 35 bucks. Well, Roosevelt wanted to move the country to not being directly linked to the gold standard. So your paper would no longer say redeemable for $20 in gold. Okay, It would say Federal Reserve Note on it. And there would be no gold behind it whatsoever. Or if there is gold behind it, it would be some type of uh, of mathematical formula that they could change. And say there's X amount of gold in relation to X amount of currency. And start playing the voodoo game that kind of took off and went nuts in 1975 when Nixon took us off the last bit of the gold standard. So what he did is he said, okay, you must now trade your $20 gold piece, right, for a U.S. $20 note. So all the gold that was out there and the gold that was first seized, that was in the hands of the people, and the other people had gold bars and all, and yeah, you couldn't own that under, under Roosevelt, but what he really seized is he didn't go into the millionaire's home that had a vault with, you know, 200 pounds of gold in it and take his gold away. They made the common man who had been using gold as currency, who walked into a general store, and when they bought $15 worth of goods, threw a $20 gold coin on the counter. I know it's hard for us to get our heads around that. That's how it used to work. And the guy would give him maybe $5 back in silver certificates, as they were called, as change. Or maybe he would throw a $5 gold piece back at him, a smaller piece of gold, and change. That's how it worked. That's what the initial seizure was. And people were required to accept the currency value rather than the world price value of gold. So basically he stole, I think it works out to about $17 an ounce, which was almost double what the gold was said to be worth. He basically took people that were already poor and impoverished in the middle of the Great Depression and robbed them of what little wealth they had and seized the gold. Now, in 1975, Nixon took us off the last vestiges of the gold standard. There's absolutely no correlation today between how much gold the federal uh, government has and how much money can be printed. None. The two things are as different as an apple and an orange. When that happened, there became no longer any reason to hold down the American people from owning gold. Uh, and gold took this meteoric rise upward now at over $1,000 an ounce. It was about $35 an ounce in 1970, to put this in perspective for you. So the value of gold pretty much stayed the same between 1935 and 1970. It was almost, it was almost flat-lined against the inflation curve because the doubling was robbed from the people at the time that the currency was exchanged against it. So gold now became something that the, the monetary policy wasn't involved with anymore, didn't matter anymore. So the fear that we have today is that with the way we're trashing the dollar, eventually we may have to go back to a gold standard. And at that point, the federal government may take this action again. My statement to you is I wouldn't really worry about that. I think the people of this country would be in the streets pulling politicians out in the streets and hanging them from trees if they tried to do that. I don't think they can get away with that. I'll also tell you that it takes away from the primary reason for owning gold. The two biggest reasons I tell you to own gold is so that they keep trashing our economy the way that they are. You can sell your gold and recuperate currency under the new economy for it when you need to buy something. Or if you ever have to leave this country for any reason, you have portable wealth. And that you'll be able to go exchange that gold for currency in any other nation, any place else in the world. It's the only way I know of to have a universally exchangeable, high value, small item currency that can be immediately changed. And you can't do it with people say, I've had people ask me about diamonds and jewels. Can't do the same thing. Somebody has to look at a jewel and is the, you know, facet certain ways and, you know, all different types of, uh, of subjectivity. Gold has a world market value. Anywhere you go in the world, there's a value of the existing currency against the gold. Nothing else is that portable silver, I'd be even less concerned about it being confiscated. I worry more about the assets of the American people in general being confiscated under some type of martial law, under a total system breakdown, a total dissolution. So, that's even a bigger reason to own gold, because I can put gold in uh, or silver in a place that I can put my physical hands on it, where it's not registered, it's not on a list. And that's what you need to understand today, when you go out and buy some gold, or buy some silver, you're not on a list. It's not like there's a registration list and they know where all the gold is. They have no idea. It's private. That's another reason to invest in it. Now, one more thing I need to say before I move on. I'm not buying gold right now. I think it's overvalued at uh, 1050 or whatever it's at right now. I think that as we have our false recovery, which is what I think we're going to have in 2010, 2011, maybe even in 2012, uh, with all this uh, money being dumped into the economy, it's going to create this, this you know, basically giving a crack addict to credit card, and he looks like he's living the high life for a while, and a big giant bubble that'll pop in 2012, 2013, maybe 2014. Uh, and when that bubble comes and everybody forgets what we just went through and all the band starts to play again, the value of gold is going to drop as investors pull their money out of gold and go back into the market. And to me, that's going to be a good time to look at buying some gold again. So I already own some gold. If I didn't own any, I would probably at least lay up an ounce or two if I had the financial means to do so right now. But I would be looking at that as a very long-term play. I think $2,000 gold is not out of the question. It just ain't going to be in the next three or four years. So if you're putting any money in gold today, It better be money that you have at least a five-year plan of holding for, or because you may put in a situation where you need to leave and you want to have portable private currency options. Those are the two reasons for gold today if you don't own any. Silver, I think, is still a great buy at its current price. I'm still investing in silver on a monthly basis. But don't overthink this stuff because it's like trying to use a crystal ball to say what will the idiots do next. And the answer is you can't predict the next activity of an idiot. So let's move on to the uh, the last and final question of the day.
0: Chuck, it's uh, Craig uh, username Nanodeck on the forum interesting thing I've kind of noticed over the past uh, month or two um, going to the grocery store in the uh, uh, just in my local area here in Vermont and even in a lot of the cooking stores and stuff around here more and more we're starting I'm starting to notice um, canning supplies um, on sale big big displays of canning supplies with regular turnover in the stores, people buying them alongside um, a lot of interest. I just was in a uh, bookstore, a Borders bookstore, um, downtown here in Burlington, Vermont, and uh, noticed um, I was kind of tucked back in an aisle looking over some books and um, just was kind of uh, hanging back from the area where the uh, self-sufficiency books are and I noticed a lot of foot traffic of people walking in there um, asking people where the where the you know homestead books were that kind of thing and it just kind of was uh, sizing these people up that were going in there and it seemed like we had a lo- I, I just noticed a lot of people from a uh, multitude of walks of life people I never would have expected um, it's just an interesting sort of uh I guess an observation that I noticed just in my small little neck of the woods here in Vermont regarding, you know, self-sufficiency, people getting more interested in that, canning supplies. I'm just kind of sitting outside here um, across from a cooking store on a small little uh, uh, street here. Uh, it's a local little uh, cooking supply store, and they've got a big sign out front, canning supplies. They never had that before. It's interesting. Um, the reason why I just basically made that... Uh, made the call is that I just wondered if, uh, you know, yourself or anyone else um, could kind of attest to that. If you mentioned this on one of the shows, if uh, anyone else has kind of noticed this. I just kind of wonder, it seems, you know, more and more people are kind of looking at this and, uh, you you know, it makes me smile and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, maybe we're starting to see some people start to finally wake up now. So um, this was interesting to hear what your thoughts were on that and see if you had kind of noticed the same thing. Uh, great show, Jack, and uh, look forward to listening to you again. Thanks. Bye.
1: I think you're dead on, and I think it's it's for a variety of reasons. I think, you know, first of all, you got to think about it. It's being seen in the mainstream news. Now, they're doing a good job of painting us as being extremists and crazy people. And, you know, I there was that thing that went on on the Today Show, and they actually contacted me, and they wanted to, to use me for that piece, but they wanted to come in and film a giant pantry full of food stock to the roof and paint me as a guy sitting and waiting for the apocalypse. And I turned that piece down. Uh, I ended up on Judge Napolitano's show because of you guys, so that's a mainstream piece of media. I've seen a lot of it, and I'm seeing it like you are in the day-to-day public world. And mainstream media is always going to chase what the with the, what the mainstream are doing or at least paying attention to. Here's some thoughts on that. One, I'll tell you what I've seen. When I go to the bookstore, I'm with you. I see people in the gardening sections. I see them in the survival sections, and I see them... Um, gathered around the things that are like about preserving food and stuff like that as well. And I'm seeing people like you are from all walks of life, from kind of the very urban professional looking people to the to the more common everyday individual. And I I see that going across the board. I'm talking to people. I think the bigger eye-opener for me, because I'm privy to a lot of things that I obviously don't make available to the entire audience, is what the demographic profile of the audience is. And I can't give any specific examples, because I won't give away anybody's personal information, but I can tell you just by the email addresses uh, of people that email me and tell me, you know, I like your show and here's what we're doing, that we have people that are involved in all walks of life. There are people that work for FEMA that listen to this show and enjoy it. There are people that work for various offices of the federal government that listen to this show and enjoy it, and know they're not spies. They're not. I'm sure there are people listening in to see what we're doing because we're, you know, some kind of extreme organization. But I'm talking about individuals here that I've had way too much conversation with to know these people aren't spies. Because there's nothing to spy on here. That's the other thing: you paranoid people, you people the the tinfoil or mylar hats need to realize. I public about everything I'm doing. Everything's out in the open. You don't have to spy. You just download and listen. So I'm telling you, they're there. There's people that work for engineering firms, for law offices. Uh, for city and state governments, there are a tremendous number of people in law enforcement organizations that listen to this. There are people that are farmers and there are people that are multi-six figure earners listening to this show. And they're doing that because we have commonly looked out as Americans and realized that what we're doing is not sustainable. And I think that's hope for America. You know, remember John, John Edwards, we are bringing hope for America. I think this is true hope for America. People actually waking up. People are actually reading bills online. And I don't mean bills like they send you for your electricity. People are reading proposed legislation. In 1985, if you walked up to a person on the street and said, Have you ever read a proposed bill? you actually read the text of something the Congress or Senate's going to vote on, most people would say no. I think you would find, you know, most people would still say no today, but you'll find a surprisingly large number of people that say, yeah, I've read a proposed piece of legislation in my lifetime. And it's probably been in the last five years. And it's probably definitely been in the last year if they say yes to it. People are paying attention. People are starting to ask questions that haven't been asked for a long time by the general population. You know, back in the 1800s, Uh, especially the early 1800s, pre-Civil War era. When people talked about politics, they didn't talk about what the government should do. When something came up, they talked about whether the government was allowed to do it. The main object of topic or topic of discussion in the bars and the pubs and in the social organizations was the Constitution itself. What can they do? And I think that people are looking at it realizing that the government's outstepped its bounds, and they realize that people are going to start pushing back. That's going to create turmoil. I think that they look at the monetary policy and they go, this isn't When they start looking at the fact that we have a $100 trillion hole in two programs in our government alone between now and 2050, $100 trillion. More money than exists in the world than just two programs. When people start to realize that within 10 years, the entire receipt of the United States government's uh, tax uh, is going to be used to pay nothing but the interest on the debt, that we're into an abyss that we can never come out of. When people start to realize that, yeah, your money's not backed by any commodity whatsoever, they just print it. When people start to ask these questions, they start to realize that, hey, I'm vulnerable. And when they start looking at their vulnerabilities, they start looking at things like, well, what about natural disasters? And people have seen what happened with Hurricane Katrina. They saw what happened with Hurricane Ike. They see what's happening. And they, then they, once they see the big one, they start to look at the little Ones that they've been ignoring that have always been there. Wildfires in California. They start to look at the fact that California as a state is about to go broke. It's about to go completely, totally bankrupt. And they realize that we're doing the same things at the federal level that California did at the state level. It's a recipe for failure. So I think it's simply the fact that people are paying attention. And I think it's also the fact that the Internet's here. I think it's the greatest tool known to mankind as long as people do what I kept saying today, verify. Please verify things before you go running rampant with them. But when we get verifiable information today, and it's not about the newspapers controlling it anymore, the newspapers can decide we're going to run this story, but we're going to run it on page 7 of Section C and bury it, and we'll make sure it's only talked about for a day or two, and we'll make it go away. Well, now, between talk radio and the Internet, you can't do that anymore. Things don't just go away. Some guy gets really pissed off about it, and he tells 50 of his buddies to blog, and it's on 50 blogs. Hopefully, it's verified and true, but when it is, it tends to get legs, and it tends to stick around. All of these things are adding up. Twitter is involved, people are communicating more, Facebook. There's this interconnectivity now of information between people, and it's driving this. And yes, I've seen it. I've seen it all over the place. And I think it's probably been there, and the only reason we're seeing it now is we're paying attention for it, and we're looking for it, and we're there too. In other words, the reason you notice the person in the canning section of the store is because you look at the canning section of the store now. The reason you notice the person in a certain part of the uh, bookstores because you go there too so my thought is they've probably always been there we're just increasing the numbers and we're increasing the observation and that's a great place to kind of wrap up today because folks i want you to realize something above all things in all of this stuff you're not alone people all over the world see things the way that you do not just in the united states they're realizing how precarious the human condition is they realize that no one is going to take care of them except them they're stepping up and they're taking action now to preempt problems in the future and they're improving the way that they live today by being smart about their decisions. They're not being guilted into spending money. Folks, you and I have been blamed for the economy not recovering yet. If we just quit being cheapskates and dust off the old platinum card and get out there and start buying some junk again, well, this economy would get kickstarted. You're a greedy American because you're not spending money on credit. That's actually been said, not in those words, but in that exact thought frame. It's been said by the media. It's been said by your own government. After 9-11, what did George Bush ask you to do? He asked you to shop to be patriotic, to rebound the economy. Folks, it's time for you to start taking care of you and your family. It's time to bring back the values of saving and being prepared. All of these things are simply cyclical. We forgot about them. But you know what? They were intrinsic to our grandparents, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, all the way up until the 80s, when those people were still here. They were old, they weren't being listened to, but they were still shouting to their grandkids, that's us, that's the now generation. That's the 30- and 40-year-old today. You can remember your grandparents saying, your mother's crazy spending all that money with that credit card. Don't you do it? And you probably did it too. But when you felt the pain of it, you didn't blame somebody else. You looked back and said, I should have listened to Grandma. I should have listened to Great Grandpa. I should have listened to Great Uncle Hector or whoever. Because those people knew these things. They lived by these things. They did these things that we talk about, and it wasn't survivalism. It wasn't preparation. It was day-to-day life. They grew a garden. They pickled. They canned. They jarred. They had reserved food. Once electricity came around, they'd go out and get an, a, a generator. As soon as they could afford to pay cash for one. Because they knew that the electricity would go out during the first ice storm. They did all of these things. So when you look out and you see your fellow man starting to do them too, that's hope. That's hope that we can get back to common sense. And I think we could all use a little bit more common sense in your life. So my final thought for you today, the next time somebody asks you what survivalism, what preparation, what permaculture, what any of this stuff is all about, emergency planning, tell them it real simple. It's all about common sense. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or you
0: can
3: We'll be